Most undeliverable mail is beyond unremarkable, as you can imagine. Crossing over into the territory of Dole, a series of mundane correspondences detailing travel plans and financial matters, or even, dare I call them ordinary, emotional matters that are no more interesting to those uninvolved than the nocturnal adventures of others such are dreams. Of course, every rule has its exceptions, and that is the case with the undeliverable mail that never made it to the now derelict Westermark Manor so named for the surname of its former inhabitants, scattered on the winds like embers after the fires. The first correspondences are letters from the youngest Westermark, Madeline, addressed to her brother Morgan at a non-existent location, the reason for the mail's undeliverability. For reasons unknown, Madeline fabricated street and city names according to my researching maps and requesting the assistance of postmasters, although when I conveyed the reasons for my research, those interactions were tarnished by the infectious infamy of the Westermark family, and I was always shortly dismissed. The letters were written during the final two of the three months that the rebuilt Westermark Manor stood, starting days after Morgan struck out west, and ending the day before the second fire in which Madeline perished. I can add little more meaningful analysis beyond documenting the letters as they were, and we'll begin now. November 8th. My dearest Morgan, I hope that this finds you well, and that you have not come to regret rebuilding Westermark Manor. That you still hold in your heart the idea that the world is a better place with the home we have always shared in it. Of course, this is not the only idea I hope to entice you back to, but also that the place where you truly belong is here with me, warm by the hearth we have always shared. As you know, the only part of the house that did not require rebuilding. The heart of Westermark Manor still beats, even if the soul wants for you. Sometimes I imagine you are with me, comforting me as I wince away from the flames like you did at Cousin William's manse the first days after our misfortune. I must have looked like such a ninny, sitting and shivering halfway across the room in the dead of winter, but even as you warmed me, you downplayed my silliness, for which I was grateful, and everyone was too good to say anything disparaging about their dear Madeline. But oh, it is good to be back home, as much as anywhere can feel like home without mother and father, or you, Morgan, especially you. I try and focus on the familiar which remains, the house itself changed as it is, and the gardens as well as Daniel, but he is distant anymore, surely missing you. And the gardens have gone dormant for the year, all except the pines. Do not get jealous, but I think I'm half in love with the sturdy handsome pine which rests outside my window. In my luckiest springs, it is home to some robins, the reds of their breasts vivid before the evergreen branches. Since I was young, they invoked the best of Christmas for me, even on the warmest days. Have I ever told you that? Given that we grew close after the fire, I must not have. After last year, I worry how the holiday will feel for us now. I suppose it is not long before I find out. As the anniversary of the fire draws nearer, the weight of it sits increasingly on my chest. 
as does my sorrow for missing mother and father and you, my dear Morgan, despite that I take comfort in the fact that you are alive and well, assuming the wild does not swallow you whole. In my way, I do miss the old Westermark Manor, the smell and the look of it, the way we were ingrained in the place, the slight discolorations on the wallpaper of places our hands found over and over, smooth and resistant anymore to cleaning. But would my family forsake me for changing my dress? No. And besides, Mother was for a time saying that she wished to redecorate, although closer towards the end she had dropped the subject. Perhaps you are the wiser of the three remaining Westermark children, having fled with just your memories, but I should not say such a thing, considering that I am attempting to entice you to come home. And rest assured, dear Morgan, that each of my correspondences will be pleased for you to return to me. All my love, Madeline. November 25th. My dearest Morgan, if I am to tell you how I am doing, for what other purpose does a letter serve, the word that comes to mind is preoccupied. I find myself increasingly powerless but to recall in startlingly vivid detail the night of the fire, tied up in my memory with the night before your hasty departure. When these distractions haunt my waking hours, it is with cautious regret. I stumble over the minutes and hours, looking for a better outcome, searching for a better action I could have taken. As if this will launch me back in time for that coveted second chance. I have been reliving the night of the fire, dear Morgan. I would understand if you need to skip this portion of the letter, despite that I took the time to convey these thoughts. For it is you who saw the manor burn while you held my head against your racing heart, tightening against me until you became my whole or at least all I could perceive, protecting me from my worst impulses if I moved to sea. How did the catastrophe begin? I was in bed, of course, it being the middle of the night, and you came to get me. Daniel shouting in the doorway, rushing us appropriately, the flames roaring at his back. We fled together, careful despite that we'd become a tangle of limbs and haste and upsetting backward glances invoked at the knowledge that we were powerless but to leave our parents to perish. We stood on the lawn beneath the magnolia tree, snow wetting our dressing gowns and slippers, the only clothes we owned that night. I swore that I could hear our parents' cries. But these screams must have been in my imagination, for the deafening flames were all that I could hear, until you wrapped me in your arms and you became my whole world, dear Morgan. You and the stars above. No matter how many times I relive these events, all my actions were reactions. There is nothing I could have done to make things better. I'm left to conclude that for all our agency and insight, ultimately a human is all too often a powerless being. This surrender, my sweet brother, does some to reconcile all the other nights consumed by flames. Danger of my mind's own creation. Dreams that bleed into waking. 
Do you remember how you found me the night before you left? Crying and frantic in the halls, trying to find my way down the corridors, strange for their newness, but familiar for being a light? Had you not found me, would I have realized on my own that I was wandering through an unshakable nightmare? Would I have returned to my own chambers had you not wrapped your arms around me and led me to your own, rocking me to sleep and allowing me to stay until morning? These questions do not have an answer, for that is what happened. And if left to my own wanderings, how would it vary from the nights I live currently, where I find myself between worlds and meandering our manor, looking to escape the fires, so real to me as they lick the walls and threaten my entire existence, not only with the possibility of death, but also the prospect that, since they are not real, they will burn down my very mind, leaving a fearful shell. And what do I do when these false flames encroach? Why I seek out my solace, my dear Morgan, only to find your chambers empty like a bloodless heart. On these occasions, I climb into your bed, the bed where you have slept if only a dozen or so times, and inevitably weep until morning. Oh, how I wish you were here with me, dear Morgan. All my love, Madeline. December 3rd. My dear sweet Morgan, I fear for my sanity. The only sane thing is to fear for my sanity. I saw a mother and father in the library. It was midday, and though the winter sun was of a dull quality as it slanted scant in the windows, there was enough luminescence that they could hardly have been mistaken for shadows or some kind of trick of the light. Why, I was sitting in an armchair right across from them. They disappeared with the same suddenness that they came, their brevity so complete as to create only an insignificant blink in time, leaving me to decide whether this was a trick of the eye or mind. Perhaps it was a trick of the heart, a twisted defense against loneliness with you being gone and Daniel disappearing more often than not. Sometimes I wonder if by breaking into the world the two of you have always shared, I destroyed it. Broadly, I understand, if not why you left, that you felt like you had to. And without you, Daniel has been distant and more than a bit strange. One thing I'm sure is not another trick of the mind. I do miss our parents so. I cannot even say what outlandish manner of things I would willingly be denied to feel mother's fingers running over my hair between brush strokes before twisting all my locks into perfection. <laughs> Do you remember the lovely auburn color of her hair? I suppose mine is the same, though I could never convince myself of this. Further, there is nothing I wouldn't give to listen to father read aloud as only he could in his smooth baritone, so transportive and lovely. I can close my eyes and hear it almost. But I always had a robust imagination, which could explain how I saw my very surely dead parents sitting in the library. Father was reading in his favorite armchair, the one he placed the perfect distance from the fire so as to stay warm but never get hot. Upholstered in the most buttery crimson velvet, which did not match the rest of the decor. But he would not let Mother alter it, despite the discord she claimed it created in the room. 
Mother was a bit closer to the fireplace. She sat on the floor, curled up and gently weeping. I inquired to father why he had failed to comfort her, as I went to do so myself, knowing he considered crying to be silliness. Just as I was about to touch her, they both disappeared. Such a cruel thing, my own mind. If only it would allow me to inhabit reality, true good and exclusive, or the fanciful realm of phantoms, not both. Ah, dear Morgan, I do hope you return to me soon. I feel that you, exclusively you, could help me understand. All my love, Madeline. December 10th. My dearest Morgan. I beseech you, Morgan, please write me as soon as you get this, or Daniel. I just need to know that you are safe. For now, in addition to my sanity, I must worry about your safety, having spent the day with you. Ah, what did I do during these hours? But now I fear that I have yet another ghost, and I am left knowing that if you are alive, I am at a loss to trust my facilities, and if you are dead, I am perfectly haunted, a magnet for phantoms. If you are dead, I hope that you will haunt me during my last hours, which will be spent walking along the shore without eating or sleeping until I come across a seaside cliff, at which time I will throw myself from the highest point, dashing myself upon the rocks. Hopefully you will get this and understand my dramatics as an expression of my utter inability to live without you. A sentiment that Daniel seems to share, given how strange he has been acting since you departed. He spends much of his time in the cellar, a quirk he will not discuss, and my attempts to entice him into my company are as unsuccessful as mine to you. For even if he inquires upon my needs, it is in a rudimentary way, which is to say, if I try to discuss any subject with him, no matter how frivolous or profound, he will sit in my company, but in a private vacancy that, unfortunately, I relate to all too well. I cannot say which concerns me more, Daniel's apparent preoccupation or the strange events of yesterday, which I will describe to you here. I was sitting in the drawing room, left alone to contemplate my recent visions, lonely but too disturbed to be bored, when there you were, standing in the doorway, tall and solid and asking me to go to the beach with you. At first I thought you were Daniel, clean-shaven and newly unoccupied, present as he cannot seem to be anymore. But there the two of you were, side by side and asking me for an outing. Oh, in hindsight, I curse even the wings given to me by my elation at the sight of you, the flight I took, as it never occurred to me that you might disappear into the spectral ether the way mother and father did that day in the library, leaving me to wonder about your safety. But I shan't imagine you dead, or I will cry and smear the ink until I am unable to finish this letter.
Although it was cold, we went to the beach. I would not have the heart to argue with my prodigal brother, and due to the intemperate weather, we had the entire shore to ourselves and were in all ways unbothered. For it is impossible to catch a chill with my dear Morgan by my side. We ate small cakes, which you had wrapped in parchment and tucked into your satchel. We danced without music, only to have Daniel cut in and steal you from me. Then the two of you danced together, each trying to lead. Never have I witnessed such pure whimsy. We were free, if only for the moment, even from what our parents would have said, were they to witness our scene. Though I feel watched by them, especially in the house, I appreciate moments of liberation, especially when swept up as we were in a display which father would have found frivolous, and mother would have viewed with a joylessness that, though it did not always plague her, hung about her like distant clouds in the months before her death. Even if I misinterpret how they would have reacted to the way their children spun around, it is escaping their trappings that allowed a new and unmoored freedom, which is only intellectualized in hindsight and tinged with more than a little heaping of guilt. That day, though, the clarity of the glorious sunset, pink and orange streaks flaming across pale blue, dying to become the infinite firmament, reflected our undisturbed minds. You took my chin between two fingers, lifted my face to look into yours, and told me to carry this with me in my heart. Daniel took my hand and kissed it with his sweet lips, agreeing that the day should be a beacon against the gloom. I rested my head on each of your shoulders in turn and promised that I would try, and you kissed me on the head and requested that I let our parents rest, assuring me that nothing haunts Westermark Manor. I said that I agreed, but in actuality, I did not want to disrupt the perfection of the exchange, so tender and loving. We walked home arm in arm to a glowing manor which smelled of our waiting supper of roast lamb and tender carrots. I put my cloak away and came back to find a dim dining room where Daniel sat distracted and not eating, although I cannot tell if he waited of politeness or preoccupation. I asked him where you were and he gave me a queer and puzzled look. When I insisted that we had all gone to the beach together, Daniel said that neither of us had seen you for a full month. I was unwell. A meal followed by a lie down would do me some good. I kept my composure rather than attempt to articulate how disturbed I truly was. I wanted to ask if he and I had been out or if I had fabricated the entire events, but I dared not utter a question where I could only dread the answer. Back in my room, there was wet sand on my boots. I went to check Daniel's, but he was still wearing them, down in the cellar where I dared not disturb him. Please write me back that I know you're alive. All my love, Madeline. December 15th. My dearest Morgan, I am so desirous to be the possessor of an untroubled mind. Although another possibility exists, something I increasingly ponder is that the very mind I defame is merely sensitive to that which others, including Daniel, cannot perceive, 
and that all I see and experience is real. Even the flames which remain are the ghost of the very element which consumed the old Westermark Manor. This prospect exacerbates the possibility that to describe the following situation does nothing to reveal the truth, because though I am sure of them once again, from our dear Daniel's perspective, I was doing nothing more than indulging my worst impulses, and after his request, that I ignore these very inclinations. My retelling may help me to sort things, so I shall convey the events as I experience them, despite that Daniel assures me that they are dissonant from his own, which he insists are reality. I had just finished a solitary supper, the winter dusk long passed, and the night settled. Lamps and candles struggled to make the rooms reasonably visible. I went to the library to read, for as Father often said, the loneliest night can be made full by reading. I will not deny that he was on my mind as I ventured into the library to find the room to my delight. Brightly lit and merry, defying my expectation that I would be taking a single candle there and lighting another merely to illuminate my little corner, just enough that the words on the page would be discernible. I was not cautious despite the unusualness of the situation. Had I been, I suppose that I would have gone to find Daniel and inquire why the library was almost bright as day. No small feat, especially in the absence of moonlight through the windows. Instead, I indulged in the gaiety and cheer, for there was father, admiring his perfectly trimmed Christmas tree, and mother, he had his arm around mother. The activities of their day given away by the woven laurels and wreaths that had been made of the cast-off branches spread about the room. They kissed before turning around to see me, something I never saw them do when they were alive. Mother turned to me and asked if I thought it looked beautiful. Through my elation, I agreed that it was among the most breathtaking things I had ever seen. But Father pointed out that it was incomplete. They needed me to tie ribbons around the branches, and at this point I was completely wrapped in the illusion. I took the white ribbon, Mother's spool was red and Father's gold, and we tied the roundest and most gorgeous bows around any empty branch until the whole room overflowed with more than decoration. It was jubilation realized. <laughs> so overcome that we could not help but begin to dance around the room, taking turns at the piano and as each other's partners conversely. And Father sang his lullaby, which I'm sure you remember. Shh. <laughs> oh, take me back to Westermark Manor, to the hearts where my heart longs to be, to rest my head in my one true home is the improved the situation was the presence of you and Daniel, whose piano skills and angelic voices put ours to shame. Not to mention that only with you could our joy be complete. And I wanted you to see the brightness of the holiday returned, consigning the last year to a horrible dream, a haze to have been muddled through falsely. We could all be together again. I was overjoyed when you appeared in the doorway, although now, of course, I know it was Daniel. 
Ah, oh, dear Morgan, won't you let me know that you're alive? He loped over to where I was and clenched me by the arm before picking up and extinguishing a previously unnoticed errant candle on the floor that was less than an inch from setting my him alight. The room went entirely dark with the snuffing out of the one candle, and Daniel wrapped me in his arms tight until I could see nothing and could only hear his heartbeat. Ever so briefly, it felt as though he was going to absorb me into himself, but he loosened his grip and lit the candle once more, and the light showed a room unadorned of evergreen and emptied of our parents. Daniel admonished me for my recklessness, for I had almost burnt down the house once more, and he called me irreplaceable. He pulled me in tight again, and though it was possible that, rather than an act of love, this gesture was to prevent me from offering an explanation for my actions, which I was glad not to have to give, for they would have sounded deceitful and repetitive all at once. Further, my confusion had not dissipated, for at the end of each embrace, I expected to find what I had been so sure was real, only to emerge to a room cold and ill-lit. It was clear that Daniel had not experienced any of the good cheer that faded quickly, even as it occurred to me that Daniel's leading me back to my room and tucking me in and staying with me until I fell asleep was not real, and that my parents looked on surrounded by cheer, but concerned as I wandered through a darkness I longed to escape. All my love, Madeline. December 20th. Dear Morgan, This morning I woke to windows streaked in wet like tears down the panes from the previous night's snow. sat by my bedside, a handsome woman despite that she had died before ever reaching ten. If I'm being honest, I don't really remember our sister. I was so young when she died, and yet, there she was, working her needlepoint. She put her work down to sit on my bed next to me, where she held my hand and stroked my hair and shared her concerns about a fever I could not remember having from the night before. My lapse of memory regarding the ailment was as worrying to her as it was to me that after spending my entire lifetime dead, there my sister stood before me, telling me that my fiancé, Mr. Newman, was in the parlor waiting to see me, and as such I was required to gather strength eating breakfast because we did not want him to have incorrect notions about my propriety, nor did we want to spend the afternoon listening to Mother react to the scandal of having him up to my chambers. She went to retrieve my meal. All things dead were made living again, and in my heart I hold a love that I did not last night before I went to sleep. For my betrothed, my Mr. Ethan Newman, I am done fighting equally feasible if contradictory perceptions. Even as realities toggle, this one offers me such relief, for now gone is the queer attachment toward you and Daniel that I have grappled with since the fires. I have always had faith that any non-fraternal love that I feel toward you would dissolve should I allow appropriate feelings for a more suitable match to grow, which somehow, overnight, I have, meaning that you may return. When the door opened again, I began speaking to Adeline, looking up to find Daniel standing there. The look of concern on his face was intermingled with the same constant and undefinable preoccupation that always sits there. 
That he tried to hide neither was in its own right distressing, for it told me that I was so far gone into the mental affliction plaguing me that he did not hesitate to show his disquiet, even at the risk of his concern further exciting me. He put the breakfast tray on my desk and came over to my bed to untie my wrist, a wretched truth for moments earlier when Adeline held my hands, there were no such constraints. I had descended into a state where truth had become meaningless. The disorientation dwindled my weak appetite further. He asked if I had addressed him as Adeline. I lied, saying that he must have caught me in the middle of a dream, although my deceit was very apparent from my state of alertness. He sat on my bed and asked me to tell him about these dreams. Attentive for the first time since you left, he was undeniably interested. He insisted that we eat together as I told him. I held a biscuit and put some eggs onto my fork without any real intentions of eating them and told him of the night before as well as the events of the morning with Adeline so far and then some. I found myself able to explain to him details about Mr. Newman and our courtship in great detail. A chance encounter while on a stroll, his tender concern for the family's welfare in our new manor, him having felt touched by the devastation he had helped to clean. And as I spoke, the flames rose behind Daniel, who seemed less bothered by them than my recent interactions with our sister and my choice for suitor, which he pondered with great interest before tying me to the bed once more and leaving with the promise that if he took a walk in the garden later on, he would come get me. Though I am sure I imagined it, he poked his head in just as he was closing the door and said that he would send Adeline in in the meantime. She arrived, and it was not at all a bad morning. I convinced her to untie me, and we talked all morning about my nieces and nephews, which got me eating a bit, and she took up her needlepoint while I spent a few minutes writing all of this down. All my love, Madeline. December 23rd. Dear Morgan, Ethan and I are to be wed on Christmas Eve. Though I am quite sure that you received your invitation, I am quite expecting that your presence will be missed, unless you object to our union. If you were to make it known that the nuptials are unacceptable, surely I would have to consider your protestations. If nothing else, you could let us know that you are alive. Think of it as your marriage gift to me, Madeline. This concludes Madeline's undeliverable letters. One of her last acts before the second fire, apparently set on accident due to neglect, seems to have been an errand to the post office to drop the letters off. She did not survive to comment on the account conveyed in these letters, nor the mysteriously fabricated address she ascribed to her brother. Madeline's body was found curled up in the hearth in her finest gown, possibly as part of her marriage delusions, dead of smoke inhalation and having suffered severe burns across her entire body. 
for listening to the Domestic Aggressive Podcast. This has been the Ghost of Westermark Manor, the first installment of the Year Without Summer Quartet. My name is Meredith Lindgren, and I wrote and read the episode. All sound design and music is by Nathan Paul.